0: I could have died and gone to heaven right then, and I'd have been a happy man. That was great. You do realize, of course, that uh, the freedoms that we enjoy to be able to gather in a room like this with all 20 of us and uh, be able to sing the praises and make those declarations. Some people are literally paying uh, and persevering through all kinds of persecution, trial, and difficulty just because they hold on to and make those declarations. And uh, we happen to live in a time and a place where we don't really feel that type of persecution. Some of the ways in which we make sacrifices for our faith are pretty, pretty minimal. Uh, I will say this, though. Yesterday, about 120 people gathered here, and we went out, and uh, some of us were at Columbine. Others of us were uh, at Shiloh House, and others were working here, and and I believe there were some also at a nursing care facility. And, and um, it's one of those things you just, you go do and you serve in the name of Jesus and uh, you don't really get payback for it. You know, it's not like we get a lot of recognition or something. It's just a way to love on others and to, uh, to declare that Jesus is alive and he's at work in us. And he's always serving us. His mercies are new every morning. So when we get a chance like that as a church to go out and serve. We'll have these opportunities three, four times a year to gather, and, and if that works out for you, come join us. It's just a, it was a great day, really great day, and then we came back here and had a great lunch, so it's awesome, but thank you to those of you that were able to be with us. Um, well, we're gonna, we're gonna pray again and ask God to uh, teach us in this time. Uh, we're launching into a new series this morning, so pray with me if you would. Father, we, we uh, we do believe in the resurrection, we do believe in eternal life, we do believe in these things because of Jesus Christ, and, and even as we do believe in those things, God, we, we acknowledge also that life can be a, a very odd mixture of um, trial and, uh, and difficulty and rejoicing, good things happening in our lives. Um, we pray, Father, as we begin a, a series this morning that you would be our teacher in these weeks ahead. Uh, that we would be able to hear from you and help these folks to discern uh, what is good from what gets said this morning, from uh, maybe what isn't. Just uh, give, the, give us all discernment, God, to hear from you and uh, to become more like you. For we ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, I was reflecting this week uh, because I had to prepare a sermon, go figure, um, kind of how deeply broken our world is. Um, it's an interesting place that we live in. It's an interesting time that we live in. Um, many of us find our, our lives affected by various kinds of problems. Uh, I know somebody who's wrestling with cancer right now, facing surgery for a brain tumor tomorrow. Um, uh, some are broken and strained uh, because of difficult marriages. Their marriages are in a tough place. Um, I know some in this church that are really wrestling with the issue, the problem of loneliness, very real, very big issue. Um, I know someone in this church that's processing this thing of a broken marriage, divorce. Very, very difficult. Now, there's some in this church that are processing just financial issues, poverty. You know, not being able to really make ends meet. Uh, then there's the, the terrorism in the world that we get reminded of all too frequently, and and are and experiencing all too frequently. There's all kinds of problems, the point is. There's all kinds of problems that affect us deeply. Problems that we can't just pray away and make them go away. We can't just snap our fingers and have them disappear. And it makes you ask the question, why? Why these problems? Um, You know, it feels like problems are a part of uh, every human life. And yet, ironically, much of the time, we feel that we have to pretend that everything is okay in our lives, even when we come to church. Sometimes, especially when we come to church Uh, We put on a kind of a different hat and we kind of pretend everything's going well, everything's smooth, everything's good here. And I would argue that one of the most important questions for people of faith is how do I hang on to God when I'm smack dab in the middle of problems that kind of overwhelm me? How do I love other people when I'm really struggling? Uh, What do I do when I'm filled with disappointment or confusion, anger, fear, Loneliness, whatever it is, how do I keep going when everything is not so great in my own life? And today, as we start this series, I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at one of the oldest, strangest, and certainly most powerful stories, not just in the Bible, but in all of human history, in all of human literature. It's a fantastic story. It's a story that starts this way. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning he would... Sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. The story begins, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. Nobody knows uh, really where the land of Uz was. We don't know. Uh, we know it was in the east. We know that when Adam and Eve were Booted out of the garden, uh, they went to settle in the east. In fact, that term east of Eden in the Bible has really become a picture of living where life is broken. That's what it is. Uh, In the beginning of this story, everything is as we think it should be. Job is a pious man, he's a cautious man, so cautious, in fact, that he has a sacrifice made for each one of his children just in case, right? Just in case the children have sinned. He's taking no chances. And uh, it seems that God gives Job a wonderful life. And this is very important at the beginning of our story because it appears on the surface of things that the amount of blessing that Job experiences is directly proportional to the amount of obedience he offers to God. That's the way it seems. But as you know, trouble is coming to the land of Uz, right? Uz is the place where very bad things happen to a very good man. Us is a place not just where suffering comes, but where it comes without warning. And it comes without explanation. And it comes seemingly without God because God is nowhere to be found, so it seems. He's not answering prayer. He's not offering explanations. And just know that everybody, every single one of us will spend some time in the land of us. Maybe you're there now. Uh, Maybe you're going through a divorce or maybe you're experiencing anxiety or fear or depression or disappointment. Maybe you're just processing problems with children. That could kill a parent. Or maybe it is financial pressure, loss of a job, or it's crushing guilt or it's dealing with disease, whatever it is. So often we process these things kind of just beneath the surface because life goes on, doesn't it? We still have to function. And so we process the stress and the pressure of these things just beneath the surface. And we wonder, is there some place that I can go where I can admit that my life does have problems? And at times it's full of problems. And I would just submit to you that this place, the church ought to be that place. You know, uh, fellow Christians, small groups, you know, people who we know, uh, people that we can trust would pray with us, receive us, accept us. This ought to be the place where we can process problems together with some integrity and some honesty but unfortunately, oftentimes it's not. Now, let's go back to this story. We'll get back to that in a minute. In verse 6 in this story, there's this radical shift in scenery. Uh, The writer sets up the book of Job kind of like it's a play. Uh, It's taking place in two locations and or two stages, if you will. There's a lower stage and there's an upper stage. And the lower stage, of course, is what's happening here on earth. The upper stage would represent what's happening up in heaven. And this is crucial to the story of Job, understanding that there are these two stages, these two places where the action happens. We readers know what's happening on both stages, lower and upper, right? But the characters on earth, they don't know. All they see is what's happening on earth. Job cannot see, he cannot hear what's happening in that upper stage, in that throne room, so to speak. And so we go to the upper stage now. In Job 1, verse 6, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job... Fear God for nothing, Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you face to face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And so Satan goes out and Job loses his livestock. He loses his wealth. He loses his servants. He loses his children. He loses nearly everything. And then we kind of wait to see how is he going to respond to all of this loss and devastation. Job one twenty. it says, At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So we're told that Job grieves. We're told that he worships even offers up words of praise to God. And all of this, we're told, he did not sin. Now that happens to Job here on the lower stage, down here on earth. Then the story switches back to the upper stage, if you will, and we read this. Then the Lord said to Satan, Satan's come back yet another time. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity though you incited against me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give you all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. And from here on out, the action all takes place on the lower stage. And we need to talk for a moment about what's going on in the upper stage, that place called heaven, that place where the throne room of God is, because the action in heaven looks to us to be pretty strange, does it not? A lot of people think that the key question in the book of Job is, where is God in the midst of suffering? But I would say to you, that's not the key question. The key question on the upper stage, for that matter, the key question throughout this entire book is this, does Job fear God for nothing? It's the question that Satan put to God. The idea being proposed there by Satan is that Job is devoted to God and worships God only because it serves his self-interest. The worship and the devotion thing that Job was offering to God, strictly quid pro quo. Satan is saying to God, Job loves you, God, because you supply the blessing. Turn off the faucet of blessing and watch how fast that devotion dries up. You see, what's being explored in this book is the idea of something called sacrificial, covenantal love. The... um, Satan is suggesting that sacrificial covenantal love is a farce, it's a joke, it doesn't exist. The truth about every single human being Satan is saying is that they are out to care for number one and number one only. And that's the thought that's being explored in this book. And by the way, I just say, that's not just an ancient idea, is it? Uh, If you've ever read Richard Dawkins, if you're familiar with Richard Dawkins, he's a neo-atheist, he wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. And it's a contemporary expression of the idea that the fundamental life force driving all people in the universe is this, this thing of survival of the fittest, right? We're just passing on our genes, and that's primarily what we want to do. We're just uh, particle and process, that's all we are. And God says here in this book, no, that is not the truth. That is wrong, that is cynical. That is warped. That is misguided. Satan is wrong. At the core of reality, at the core of the universe, is this self-giving, self-sacrificing, covenantal love. That's what empowers the universe. That's what holds it together. That's what is all important. And that's what's at stake in this book. Now, Job gets hit with this second wave of suffering. If you've read it, you know about this. And his body is racked with pain. He is covered from head to toe with these boil-like sores. He sits in an ash heap. He scrapes these sores with pottery shards or sherds. And uh, he responds again. But this time, there's a, a very subtle difference, if you will, to his response compared to the first response. Uh, he does not fall on the ground in worship. He does not say the name of the Lord be praised. He goes to an ash heap uh, as an act of grieving, and uh, there he sits. There he sits in pain and suffering and loss and sorrow. His wife comes to him. You maybe remember this. She says, curse God and die. That's what she tells him. But that probably did not cheer him up. Um <laughs> Understand, though, that uh, Mrs. Job is struggling. Back in the fourth century AD, there was a great preacher. His name was John Chrysostom, and you can actually download sermons of his and read them if you like. Uh, And he made this observation way back then. He said that Job's greatest suffering was from the fact that God did not take his wife away. That's what he said. (laughs) But really, that's not fair. That's not really fair. Because think about this. She too has lost everything here, everything. She will now have to give care to a horribly diseased husband until he dies. And everyone's thought is that won't be too long from now. And then she's going to be left alone and destitute. She has no family. Her children are all dead. And so she's just giving voice to thoughts that I'm pretty sure probably also occurred to Job. He had thought some of these things. Um, And these are the kinds of thoughts that occur to all of us sometimes when our life becomes deeply, deeply problematic. Now, Job, good news, Job doesn't curse God. He doesn't take his wife's advice. Uh, But notice what he says to her. He says, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job, I think, is actually struggling here to understand the nature of God just a little bit. I mean, is God the kind of God who sends trouble? Does he send good and trouble? Uh, Or is God just really good? I mean, which is it? To what degree? Now, we're told at this point, after the second wave of suffering, uh, we read in Job 2 that in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. That's an interesting distinction from the first time this happened. Because remember, in the first wave, we're told in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now there's that little qualification. He did not sin in what he said. It just makes me wonder. I don't know, of course, can't know, but I just wonder if something wasn't stirring in his heart, questions about the goodness of God. Now, as the story unfolds, Job's friends hear about his troubles, and they've uh, come to comfort him and we're told in the second chapter that when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. They had heard that things with their friend Job were really bad, but they were in no way prepared for what they saw, and um, they show up, and They've come to, to visit somebody, this this friend of theirs, and uh, what they find is just shocking to them. Normally, you know, when somebody, uh, when you go to visit somebody who's experiencing some real difficulty, some real problem, uh, they're in a place of mourning, you go there, you try to encourage them. Maybe in this case, you'd say, Job, you know, you don't look so bad. I mean, it's not, you know, you, you know, you're, you're you look pretty good given all things here, but uh uh I don't think any of this was encouraging to Job, not in these circumstances. If somebody were to visit you in a a hospital room and in a bed and you, you were, you know, processing the kind of disease and difficulty that Job was and they suddenly burst into tears and they tore their garments apart, that probably wouldn't encourage you either. Well, that's what Job's friends did and it probably wasn't that encouraging to him. But we read this next. It says, then they sat on the ground with him For seven days and seven nights, no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Imagine sitting with someone in silence for seven days and seven nights. This was such a powerful act, in fact, that it actually became a part of Jewish life. To this day, Jewish folks will speak of going to someone who's mourning in some case and and, uh, sitting Shiva with them. Sitting sevens, that's what it literally means. Sitting sevens, the idea of going and and just sitting with them, just being with them, just trying to encourage them for the period of, of a week, seven days and seven nights. And this might be the greatest example in the Bible of what Paul commands in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, he says, mourn with those who mourn. And it's striking what we see these friends doing. It's also striking to me, Uh, what God doesn't say. You know, speaking through the Apostle Paul, mourn with those who mourn. It's striking that God uh, doesn't say, fix people who mourn. It's striking that he doesn't say, give advice to people who mourn. He doesn't say, tell people who mourn that they shouldn't mourn that they should be hopeful, that they should just believe that it'll all go away at some point. He doesn't say, tell them if you just have enough faith, if you just pray hard enough, if you just believe enough, God will make it all go away. God doesn't say that. Friends, it's, I think, really important for us to be a community where it is okay for people to mourn when they find themselves in the midst of loss, difficulty, hardship, We have to be a community where it's okay to be sad. It's okay to wrestle with the brokenness and the pain of life. And Paul just says, mourn with them. And that's what these friends do for seven days and seven nights. But after that time, they then start to speak. And they start to speak a lot. And the more they say, the more trouble they make, both for Job and for themselves. I mean, their silence was brilliant. But their words and their advice, not so much. You know, uh, one big reason why we have small groups in this church is that, that when you are mourning, you need people to be with you, to come alongside, to sit with you, to bring you food. That's what happens in small groups. And to be still with you. This is something we all can do for somebody who is suffering. You don't have to fix them. You just need to be with them. That's what Job's friends did. Finally, after seven days, though, Job speaks. And as we read this book, we're waiting kind of eagerly to hear how Job is gonna respond to this set of circumstances, this second wave of suffering. I mean, if he can just repeat what he said in chapter one, God gives, God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, then the test will be all over, right? And Job will be a very, a very, very short uh, sweet little book with a happy ending, and boom, we're all done. But we run into Job chapter 3. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And this is why Job did not have a big TV ministry right here. You see, this is not really victory gospel kind of stuff, nor is it Tony Robbins kind of thing, positive think, you know. For the next 28 chapters, Job pours out a level of bitterness, confusion, sorrow, doubt, and anger toward God that is really staggering. For example, he says, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me, he says. A little later in the book, he says, God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. It's a picture of the capture of an animal or the capsule of a bird with with a net. God has netted me, he's saying. It's kind of ironic to me because sometimes you hear people say, boy, you know, that person has the patience of Job. And I scratch my head and go, what are you talking about? Have you read the book of Job? This is not a book about patience. Job's words, I would say, are incredibly impatient. He says to God, how long, God? Speak up, God. Make this stop, God. Where are you? This isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? All these things, Job pours out to God. Uh, Sometimes in the suffering world, uh, you'll hear it said, you know, just just trust God in your suffering. Just trust God. Not in this book, it doesn't say that. Job accuses God. Job blames God. God. Job challenges God, again, not as a skeptic or as an atheist, but as a believer holding on to God. He does this in such an honest, raw, unvarnished way that his three pious, God-believing friends can't stand it anymore. And they say, Job, what are you saying? You need to shut up. You shouldn't talk about God this way. You shouldn't talk about your circumstances this way. And they begin to offer an alternative point of view. And that point of view is, in fact, typical Mesopotamian wisdom. That's what they offer. It's kind of like ancient self-help literature is what it is. The core idea was this. If you're suffering, you must have done something bad. If you're prospering, You must have done something good. And so if you find yourself suffering, just identify what's wrong in your life and stop it. And then things will turn around and you'll start experiencing the blessing of God. Now, if you've ever read Job, you've noticed that the middle 30 chapters of the book are incredibly repetitive. Anybody? You notice that? And also boring. Anybody gonna be honest? But understand, they're supposed to be. There's a purpose to the pattern of writing that the author uses in this book of Job. Um, The writer wants us to see that this notion, this idea that we earn our blessing and we also earn our suffering, that idea is just plain wrong. It's not true. And Job is living proof that it's not true. Job says, if only I knew where to find him, he's talking about God, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. He wants to have a a one-on-one with God. Job is trusting God, you could say, by challenging God. Job is being very honest, very real, He's taking all of these thoughts and all of these feelings directly to God. Maybe, maybe in Job's case, in these circumstances to challenge God is to trust God. Job says this in Job nine, he says, I wish I could take God to court. He wants to go there, call God, you know, on the carpet, so to speak. And say, why is this happening to me? What have I done? Now, In chapter 38, Job gets his wish. In fact, we read this. It says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of a storm. How do you think that went? I mean, imagine Job then. God actually does show up. This is what Job has been asking for. God shows up, and this is what we read. This is God speaking. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Now you'll notice in this, if you read through this book, that when God does appear and begin to converse with Job, he doesn't seem to get around to answering any of Job's questions. And all of Job's questions have to do with the why. Why? Why me? Why now? Why this? And this is very important for us to be aware of. It's a very deliberate thing going on here. God does not tell Job what the writer has told us about that upper stage. Job doesn't know anything about that, remember, chapters one and two. Uh, He doesn't tell him that Satan, the accuser, has come and pointed the finger at Job and and that there's this dialogue, this debate going on about sacrificial, covenantal love. Job doesn't know any of that. What God does with Job is just ask him a bunch of questions that Job can't answer. Why does God do that? Is God being mean? Is he making fun of Job? Job? Is he picking on him? Is he just trying to make him feel dumb? Well, the answer is well, sort of. Uh, Part of what's happening is that God is pointing out that Job has a finite mind, he has a limited point of view, and should not expect to be able to understand everything that happens. And that, friends, is really true of all of us, is it not? But there's something else going on as well, something very important for us to get. There's a, an Old Testament scholar, her name is Ellen Davis. <clears throat> and uh, she's at Duke uh, Divinity School. And she's written about this. And she points out that God's questions are actually leading questions. They lead to somewhere really important. They tell us something very important about the person of God, about his nature, about what he's like. And so in questioning Job, God asks these kinds of questions. He says, Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Now, you see, in the ancient world, uh, particularly in Israel, these would be striking questions to be asking. Life, of course, depended on rainfall. They would never waste water. So, why would God water a land where no one lives? There are no human beings there. There's nothing strategic there. Why waste that water? That's the question. And the answer is because. Because God is gratuitously good. He's good for no reason at all, whether it benefits himself or benefits someone else. He is good because he just loves to give and be generous. He is good just because it's in his nature. It's part of his loving heart. He delights in animals that are of no apparent use whatsoever. They're not strategic, so to speak. Not to human beings anyway. And to illustrate this, the book talks about God making animals like the ostrich, right? Uh, This is Job 39. It talks about the ostrich. You know, she's got these wings and she flaps wings joyously, but she can't fly, I mean, think about this. Picture it visually. This giant big bird with wings that can flap the wings like, can't fly. It also tells us that she lays her eggs on the ground and doesn't even remember where she's put them. She's a lousy parent. She's the opposite of Job, who's cautious and caring and so, right? The ostrich doesn't even remember where she left her kids. And, you know, she's not going to ever win the uh, mother of the year award. Not going to happen. And yet we read, When she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. You get the point, right? God is simply saying, you know, I just thought it would be hilarious to create a bird that can't fly, but when it runs, it's faster than a horse and rider. How hilarious is this going to be? How great is this going to be? This is going to be beautiful. It's going to be marvelous. It's going to be something to behold, don't you think? That's what God was doing. God says, I have a need for speed. And he creates a bird to meet that need. God says in chapter 40, verse 15, he said, I made the behemoth. A lot of Bible commentators think this is uh, the hippo, probably is, uh, which frankly is another useless animal. What do you do with a hippo? You can't domesticate a hippo. They won't pull a plow. They're not that great for eating. What do you do with a hippo? A hippo is a dangerous animal. I'm told one of the most dangerous. In the ancient world, the behemoth was considered a chaos monster that needed to be destroyed. If you wanted to go live in that area where the hippos were, you're going to have to eliminate the hippos. So why do these creatures even exist? What good are they? Well, God says this in Job 40, he says, the hippo ranks first among the works of God or the behemoth ranks first among, God is saying it's one of the best things I ever made. (laughs) Go figure. Go figure. In chapter 39, he gives us this other list. He talks about the wild ox. The wild ox will never plow, he says. You're not going to domesticate it. The wild ox will never serve farmers. So why does the wild ox even exist? God says he's magnificent. Look at him. He talks about the wild donkey. He says the wild donkey, you'll never put him behind a cart. You're never going to ride him. He's just out there doing his thing. And then he talks about mountain goats who give birth in secret places. Human beings are never even going to witness this. So why does it happen? What's the point? What's the strategy around any of this? And then there's chapter 41, God delights in Leviathan, which is almost certainly either a fire-breathing dragon or a crocodile, not sure which. But it's this animal that nobody will ever tame. That's what it says, nobody's ever gonna tame this animal. He's not great for food. You can't harness anything to him. You just gotta watch out for him and make sure he doesn't get you, right? God says this in Job 41, 33, nothing on earth is his equal. You see, this whole section is God creating and caring for and giving to and delighting in animals that are, humanly speaking, good for nothing. They serve no purpose that anybody could imagine or come up with. So why would God make a world like this? Why would God create these creatures? Answer is just because, because he can, because he revels in beauty. In creatures that inspire and in majesty, he delights in showing goodness to even the least strategic of the creatures. I was talking to a friend just recently got back from a, a, um, a trip to Africa. They went on safari. And, they, you know, if you ever talk to anybody who goes on safari, they're, they're going to tell you, oh, man, I saw a giraffe. It's Unbelievable. I saw hippos. We saw hippos. Unbelievable. Well, they've got a story about a crocodile, you know, eating a, what would the big, uh, what's the animal that's going to be diving into the river? There you go. It's a wildebeest. And the, the crocodile it, it takes, you know, you know, as the wildebeest jumps in and pulls him down, they said it was, it was, you know, shocking. It was awe-inspiring, the power of these beasts that have been created, you know, and that's part of the point. These creatures evoke mystery and wonder and awe and, oh, my gosh. Oh my gosh, did you see that? You see? They demonstrate that God is also gratuitously good. Uncontrollable generous and irrationally loving. He just creates and makes and sustains and cares for for no reason at all. Just because it's in his nature to care, it's in his nature to give. Interestingly, Job never does find out about the conversation up there in heaven. He doesn't know that that covenantal sacrificial love conversation is going on. And he doesn't find any of that out for a very important reason. And that is because, you see, his story is our story. In this life, living on this problematic planet, we live down here on the lower stage. And we don't get to know or get to see or get to hear much about what goes on up there in the upper stage. We don't oftentimes get the rationale for why this is happening, right? But understand, Job finds out about something even better, something way better. He finds out in this conversation, this dialogue with God, as he pours out his heart, as God eventually comes and speaks to him, he finds out who God is. He discovers that God, again, is irrationally loving, gratuitously good, unbelievably self-giving. And in the end, that becomes enough for Job, more than enough. That's all Job needed. And he says to this God, he says, my, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And that's enough. God is good. Job is sure of that. God is Good. Now, the book of Job ends with this epilogue thing going on. It's very significant. God says to Job's comforters, these are his friends that have came, he says this to Eliaphaz, he says, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Whoa, (laughs) okay. You got to imagine that moment. Uh, That's a moment of confusion and uh, disorientation for Job's friends, I think. When Job complains about God and yells at God and accuses God of shooting him with arrows and not being fair, these friends think they've got to come to God's rescue and they've got to present a different view of God, a different interpretation of these facts of this situation. And they're quite sure that their arguments are right, but God shows up and he says, nope, Job is right. You were wrong. And God says to them in Job 42, 8, he says, but if Job will pray for you, I'll forgive you. Wow. (laughs) How interesting. God forgives his defenders when they are prayed for by his relentless attacker. That's a surprise. An interesting surprise. And then we're told this. We read that the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep. That's twice as many as he had before. 6,000 camels, twice as many. 1,000 yoke of oxen, twice as many. And, a, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. That's the same amount. Where are the others? See, they're with God. So he, st- so he does have twice as many. He says, the first daughter he named uh, Jemima, Jemima, or Jemima, and the second Keziah, and the third Karin Hapush. Now, it says, nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. A couple of things here, when we read that, we kind of read right by it, but if you were an ancient reader reading those words, there's some stuff here that's very odd, stuff that would just jump out to you. For example, the writer does not tell us the names of Job's sons, but does give us the names of the daughters. That's weird. You know anything about Hebrew genealogies and stuff? Um, you know, this screams for an explanation. How come the, the, the men aren't mentioned, their names aren't mentioned, but the names of the daughters are mentioned? Not just that. Job, we're told, gives the girls names that are kind of strange, a little bit strange. Generally, Hebrew names are very serious. They express character or virtue or some theological truth. But these three names are just about beauty. Uh, they're almost almost silly. Um, Jemima means dove, which was a bird considered to be lovely. Uh, Keziah meant cinnamon, which, you know, was both a spice and a perfume that was used. Uh, Karin Push means horn of shadow, which some commentators think was just a way to refer to a, a cosmetic that was used um, in that day. They're not sure. But the point is, Job seems to have named his daughters after items of beauty, And this last one, it seems like maybe naming her after some makeup of some sort, like like naming your daughter Revlon or Dior or, you know, Maybelline or something. I don't know. And not only that, you notice when we read this, he gives them an inheritance. Again, in the ancient world, that would grab your attention because what you gave to your sons would take care of you in your old age. You would go to live with their families. It was like a retirement investment, what you gave to your sons. A father with seven sons would never give any of his inheritance to his daughters, because that will just go directly to the in-laws. Consider that lost, right? See, sons were financially strategic, daughters were not. You're just blowing your money if you give it to the in-laws. So why does the writer include all of this? What's going on? What's Job doing? Well, here's what he's doing. The writer includes this because now Job delights and gives to the least strategic creatures. Job has become gratuitously good, uncontrollably generous, irrationally loving. He gives for seemingly no reason at all, even when he cannot possibly profit or gain from it. He has become now very much a reflection of his God. Do you see that? Job could not see the upper stage, remember. He did not know that his suffering, his faithfulness had meaning way beyond his wildest dreams. Job's faithfulness and suffering was being used by God to to make this argument, to vindicate this argument, this this whole adventure of covenantal, sacrificial love. That is the backbone of the universe. That is the glue of the universe. That's what the universe is built upon. And Job's honesty and perseverance have been used now for thousands of years to inspire billions of people who live in the land of us. So I would just say, hang on. If that's where you are, if you're in the land of us, hang on, keep going. Don't let go. Don't give up. You have no idea. God is so close. God is so good. God is at work in your circumstances. And the writer wants to say that not just to Job. He wants to say that to us. He wants us to say it to each other over and over and over and over again. Now, here's the thing, too. Many centuries after Job, Somebody else shows up on the scene who said lots of silly things, and that was Jesus. Here's one of the silly things he said. He said, see how the lilies of the field grow? He points all of these people listening to flowers that are growing out there in the field. Nobody's watering. Just these flowers, the lilies of the field. He said, they do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. (laughs) There's that question. Why should the lilies of the field be so beautiful? Who takes care of them? Who even cares about them? Well, the Father does. The Father makes them. The Father tends them. The Father loves them. He cares for them. And we live in the Father's world He does this sheerly out of his goodness. And if he cares for and loves the flowers, will he not care for you? And of course, this man is Jesus. This is Jesus. And what we know to be true about Jesus is he came to live east of Eden. He came and he lived in the land of us. He came from up there down here to this problematic planet and he would suffer, although he had done nothing wrong. He had never sinned. And when, we're, when he died, we're told that the curtain that was in the temple, separating the holy place from the holy of holies, we're told that that curtain was rent into. It was opened up. It was like God was opening the door so that we could see with crystal clarity what the goodness and the grace and the love of God looked like as Jesus hung there on the cross. It's like in the cross, we see the love of God displayed. The point is this. Satan was dead wrong about covenantal, sacrificial love. Again, the central question in Job is, could a human being hold on to God and hold on to faith and hold on to love and hold on to goodness when it doesn't seem to pay off for them to do it? And friends, you know, the story of Job says that one could. Now, Job did it very imperfectly. I mean, he took all his pain, all his anger, all his frustration directly to God, poured it out directly to God. That was apparently the right thing to do. But then there was another one who came, this one we talked about, Jesus, who came and who actually did all of this perfectly in our stead. He did it for us. And even though we live in a land of anxiety and fear and, failure and divorce, relational breakdown. We know this one who's going to fix it all, and that is Jesus. Um, you, know, you know, we live in this fallen world. Why? Well, some of it's getting fixed. You know, the kingdom of Jesus is here now, but not fully here. It's now, but not yet, right? Right? How long are we gonna have to wait? Well, the answer to that is, I don't know till Jesus comes back. But does your response in the midst of difficulty matter? Friends, I'm here to tell you, it matters more than you could possibly know, more than you could possibly dream. It matters just as much as the suffering and the difficulty that Job experienced and how he responded to that suffering and that difficulty. And here's the thing too, we now know with greater clarity than Job did, I think. (laughs) that we serve and that we follow and that we trust in somebody who has promised to come again, who's promised to love us, who's promised to forgive us. And and, and we believe that, yes, he died, but he rose again. And we wait for the day when he will return. That's the God who loves us. And uh, he's given us a meal to partake of which is supposed to remind us of this sacrificial, covenantal love. Every time we come to this meal, we look at the body of Jesus broken for us. We look at the blood of Jesus shed for us. And we come to the table in faith with our sin and confessing it and repenting of it and asking Jesus to forgive us. And here's the good news. The good news is that's exactly what he does. This is a reminder of the whole argument of the book of Job. What holds the world together? What makes the worlds and the planets and the universe work and spin? And so is the covenantal, sacrificial love of Jesus for us. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he invited his disciples to partake. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sin. He gave it to the disciples and he said, drink. Now, we can properly partake of this sacrament when we partake by faith. Uh, If we don't have faith in Jesus, then my recommendation to you is don't partake. Just contemplate, think about, consider who Jesus is. Um, If you do know Jesus as your Savior, then he invites you to join him at this table. As we partake in faith, we also receive the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. That's part of what the sacrament is about. And, uh, and I hope that as you partake this morning, you'll, you will be reminded that as far as God is concerned, the argument has been made, it has been presented, it is crystal clear. Uh, this argument that the thing that matters more than anything else is sacrificial, covenantal love. You want to see where it's displayed most clearly? It's displayed on the cross, in the life, and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to pray and set these elements apart for their special purpose. As I do that, I'm going to ask those folks who are going to serve us this morning to come forward. And uh, then we'll have stations up here, and you'll get up out of your seats and move to your left. And, and uh, we have... Wine in the goblets with the little bracelet on the stem. We have juice in the goblets without that bracelet, and um, you'll tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, and and partake. So, pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this sacrament. That's all about sacrifice, love, mercy, forgiveness, and judgment. Your judgment was poured out upon Jesus so that we would not be judged. We are thankful, God, for your work on our behalf through our Savior. We pray, God, that you would give us the faith to come to this table full of faith, full of trust, full of thanksgiving, full of life. We pray, Father, that you would nourish us spiritually in this meal that Jesus hosts. Thank you for meeting us in this place. Thank you for this opportunity to feast on Jesus. We pray all of these things in his name, amen. If you need uh, some gluten-free wafers, there are some of those here too. You're welcome to step right up to the table and, and, uh, and serve yourself right here. Uh, so we'll have the folks get and take their place. Nope, leave those there. There you go.